from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 18 through 35. We continue our exposition in the Gospel of Luke, the life of the Lord Jesus. He has healed the centurion's servant from a distance. He has resurrected the widow's son. And now the disciples of John will come and desire to confirm the identity of Jesus. Let us then read Luke 7, beginning in verse 18. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see... The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves and being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man is come, eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Amen. May God bless the reading of, of His own word. Let us then come before the Lord now in in prayer. Let us pray. 
we again turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 and this episode where the disciples of John come to speak to Jesus. And the text that we read follows a very, a very natural pattern and, and again with some parallels in it. First, these disciples come and they question um, the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the question is about Christ's identity, giving him an opportunity to, to declare and to clarify who he is. And as soon as they leave, the Lord Jesus Christ will now speak of the identity of John. Having had those two disciples there from John, the Lord Jesus will talk to the people who are there about John. And right after that, he will then explain um, and rebuke. And the text does describe the responses to both John and Jesus, that there are those who will embrace the message of John and therefore embrace the message of Jesus, but there will be those who will reject. And, and you find this reality that rejecting John means to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus means to reject John. Their, their ministry was one and the same, even though they were different in many ways. The, the difference of their ministries is even one of the things that, that is brought to the surface. And Jesus will deal with that difference in the last few verses that we read where he... Um, likens that generation as if it were little children who do not know what to decide. These are two men, very different, but the very difference that they have could, could appeal to one and another, but they are discontent with both. They reject both John and Jesus. And so we'll first look at the identity of Jesus that, that is the first portion of, of this passage. Um, they come with this question, in summary, whether Jesus is the Messiah. If he's the one, that should come, verse 19 has it. Um, that phrase, that should come, is the concept of the Messiah that they're waiting for, or look we for another. And Jesus will answer that question. Now, a, a great debate has ensued in terms of, was this really John the Baptist's doubt? Or was it the doubt of his disciples and he was wanting to send them to the teacher to resolve this doubt? And I don't believe I'm, I'm really able to, to answer dogmatically this question, um, especially as you, as you research and study what commentators of old and modern commentators say. There's, there's a division. And although there may be some in the past who, who had both views, and there may be some in the present who have those both views. In general, when you look at the comments and you put them together, in the past, like from the Reformation on is really where I focused more, the Reformers in general, they had the view that John the Baptist was not doubting. They had the view that he could not doubt by his very office of being a prophet We'll, we'll go into detail there why they held that view. 
and more of the commentaries of the fut- the, past, the the present, not the future, but of of now, and and more recent and more modern commentators are the ones who consider this to really be John the Baptist, because he's in prison, because he is, after all, human, that he really is wondering if the Lord Jesus is the promised Messiah. And just that very reality makes me um, think, well, where, where do I stand? There's, there seems to be a safety in trusting men of old when we think of who they were and their positions, who they were and their position and how God used them. Men like Calvin and Matthew Henry and, and other reformers that I'll mention. But um, I don't want so much today to, to define precisely. We, we need to believe that John the Baptist was doubting or we, we should not believe that he was doubting. Um, I, I do believe by the comments I will make, you will see where I personally stand and where I think it's safer to, to stand um, because of some of the things that we'll work through. Um, look at what Calvin said. He says, The opinion entertained by some that he sent them partly on his own account, like because he himself was doubting, is exceedingly foolish, as if he had not been fully convinced or obtained distinct information that Jesus is the Christ. It is very evident that the Holy Herald of Christ, perceiving that he was not far from the end of his journey, and that his disciples, though he had bestowed great pains in instructing them, still remained in a state of hesitation. He resorted to this last expedient for curing their weakness. So Calvin would explain that that it was impossible that John himself would be the one doubting. He was doing this in behalf of his disciples. Now, I believe one of the main reasons, there were probably two reasons why the reformers held mainly to this view. First of all, it had to do simply with the fact of who John the Baptist was. A prophet heard God speak to him, period. Um, It could be that maybe he was going through a phase now in prison that God's not speaking so that doubt could start to, to come back. But we need to remember who John the Baptist is. He is the one whom God worked upon even when he was in the womb of his mother and he had the Holy Spirit indwelling him. And then later he was the one who would tell everyone by the very mission that he had, who Jesus was. To the point where there, there's, there's like a logical reality of how that herald could be the one literally doubting. And the one who was told there would be a sign from heaven that a dove would come, uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And, and, and John saw all these things. He baptizes the Lord Jesus. He hesitates to baptize him. He holds the Lord Jesus on his hands. You see, there's this, in the reformer's mind, and many theologians who hold to the view that no, John could not be doubting, they, they held to these realities that John the Baptist um, touched the evidence and saw and heard with his voice when the heavens parted and God spoke. And being a prophet, God could simply tell him immediately if God would want, he is the Messiah. And he held, they held to this position of John where it would be impossible that he would doubt. 
But then secondly, in, in reading, there's this other reformer who, who writes um, to some degree on this, uh, John Boyce, and he speaks of the weakness of the disciples of John. And, and it gives this plausibility that these disciples really needed this. We do have evidence in God's word of at least three very critical sins or weaknesses of these disciples. Um, one of them was envy. Um, remember in John 3.26, it says, And they came unto John, the disciples of John, and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. The idea that they're thinking, what's happening? We're, we're losing popularity, and Jesus is receiving that popularity. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. There, that displayed some envy in the hearts of the disciples. Another weakness would be that of, of ignorance. Um, John had to keep explaining to them that he was not the Christ. It's almost like the disciples of John were hoping he was the one that they could settle upon. Look at John 3, 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. So he had to keep reminding them, it's not me. It is him. Follow him. And then thirdly, we could say there was an element of incredulity in those disciples to not really believe that Jesus was the Christ. Because you'll remember not too long ago we were in Luke where, where they came to Jesus and said, why is it that the disciples of the Pharisees and of John fast often and your disciples don't? Well, in Matthew it says that it was the disciples of John who came to Jesus with this question. So they are challenging, saying, we're disciples of John, and we have a better, a better solemn way of serving God than your disciples do. That's challenging the veracity of who Christ is as a rabbi versus our rabbi, John. Again, the envy, but also a lack of faith. And this is what... John Boyce says about this. He says, In Christ's school, there were three virtues to oppose these defects of envy and ignorance and incredulity. He says, Against envy, there were examples of humility going to Jesus. Against ignorance, there were words of wisdom. And against incredulity, there were works of wonder. Therefore, John sent his disciples to Christ that in seeing his humility, their envy might be lessened. That in hearing his wisdom, their ignorance might be rectified. And that in wondering at his works, their incredulity might be confounded. Because faith in the, is the mother of all virtues and infidelity the nurse of all wickedness. When John heard of the great works of Christ, he sent his disciples so that in going they might see, in seeing they might wonder, in wondering they might believe, and in believing they might be saved. So I just want to bring to you and share with you, you might one day read a, read a commentary and it'll say, John was doubting. And, and before you just... Believe that with, with nothing. And you need to realize there's, there's more depth to this um, 
it must, might very well be that he really was not the doubter. It was his disciples. Now, why do I personally believe this is so very important? Um, you, you noticed even from this quote of John Boyce, I think this explains a little why today people can so easily jump to the conclusion John was doubting. The sin of doubt, when you search the archives of all the sins and how people, especially believers, see them, in those days was seen, as John Boyce says, faith is the mother of all virtues and infidelity the nurse of all wickedness. The reformers saw lack of faith as the mother sin. It is the nurse of all wickedness. They, they didn't call it unbelief only. They called it infidelity. And the fact that you were not believing meant you were not repenting. That made you an impenitent sinner. To be an infidel and to be impenitent is, is equivalent of being a pagan and someone who at the end has nothing to do with religion. But that's how seriously the reformers saw lack of faith and doubt and unbelief. But through the ages, the lack of sin, unbelief, infidelity has graduated and become polished. And in many circles, it's even seen as a virtue. To say, I doubt, you are praised. I was reading one of the modern commentaries that I was reading said that doubt is good because it brings growth. And I was able to see the stark difference between a today's today's commentary theologian and someone like John Boyce who would say, lack of faith, it is the nurse of wickedness. And this modern commentary was saying, doubt, well, well, you, you can grow when you have doubt. Their mindset is if you have doubt, you'll research and you'll find things out. And so I believe there's great danger when we, when we think that doubting is okay. And I believe that's one reason why some people like to say John the Baptist doubted because then it can kind of justify my doubt. Now I want to put a parenthesis here. Since, since by what I've read, I'm not able to say dogmatically. I'm not trying to say there's no possibility that he has doubted. If there is a possibility that he doubted, what we need to do is not use that as an excuse for our doubt. We need to see in this possible weakness of this man, John the Baptist, who was but a mere man at the end, something that we must shun and something we must be afraid of. And some explain, and hence could be the possibility, he's in jail now. He's in prison. One of the signs of the Messiah is that he would deliver those who were in bonds. And that that could be the connection of of his lack of faith. And so, beloved, if that is the possibility, keep this in mind, though, that lack of faith is not okay. Doubting is not good. It's a sin. And, and I remember one of the things that I think it was the Puritans who said, it is the greatest sin because every single inhabitant of hell has committed that one sin. Not everyone in hell will be one who committed adultery 
Or not all will be one who has taken the life of another in murder, but everyone there will be or is there ultimately because of not believing. And so, beloved, let us never allow lack of faith to be seen as okay, because it isn't. And the Reformers and their church fathers called it infidelity. It led to lack of repentance, so it was impenitence. And so this, regarding his doubt, but let us, or possible doubt, or the doubt of his disciples. But now let us go to the answer itself when Jesus is is now going to describe his identity. The important thing, he he doesn't answer them directly saying, yes, I am. But he says in, in verse 22, go your way and tell John what things he have seen and heard. How that the blind see, number one, the lame walk, number two, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised from, and to the poor the gospel is preached. He, he says six things that he has been doing. And in all of these things, we have these, these two realities to them that prove that he is the Messiah. One is the power, the sheer majesty and grandeur of all these miracles. Yes, there were miracles of old that were made by men like Elijah, for example, and and wonders that were connected to Moses. But as, as great as those were, none of these were, none were so focused upon one man, like with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the account of Luke that we have seen so far, we have seen the Lord Jesus deliver a man with an unclean spirit in chapter 4. It is also in that chapter that he healed the mother-in-law of Peter from that high fever, and she began to serve them. And later in that very evening, he healed many with diverse diseases and laid his hands on every one of them and healed them, it says in chapter 4. And then he brought this great multitude of fish to the net of the disciples after they had toiled all night without catching anything. Then in chapter 5, he cleanses a leprous man. Um, He also heals that paralytic man um, born by those four friends, but only after he forgives them so that his healing of that man is a proof that he also forgave him of his sins. And then he heals the man with a withered hand in chapter 6. He heals the centurion's servant in chapter 7 from a distance. And he resurrects the son of this widow. This was the last miracle. And only God can do all of these things. These things prove that he is the Messiah. Um, It proves that that this must be he who would make every valley exalted and every mountain and hill low, where the crooked would be made straight from Isaiah and the rough places plain. This is Isaiah 40. And, And that the glory of the Lord would be revealed and all flesh would see it together. And remember how um, chapter 40 verse 9 through 11, where it says, Behold your God. All of these signs were declaring, this this is God among us. This is God with us. So that, that was the first dimension, is just how powerful it was. But then secondly, how specific 
they were. Um, because everything that I, that I mentioned is, is in keeping, not only with Isaiah 40 that, that breaks out in verse 11 with, with the reality, behold our God, God is with us. He's the one making all of these obstacles go away. If, if leprosy is like a valley, it is now exalted. If, if, if a servant is about to die and that's a mountain in the life of the centurion, well, that will be made plain. If, if the sins of that man who's a paralytic was, was great crookedness in his life, it'll be now, now smooth and, and, and not rough any longer. But then... These very things that Jesus is doing are named in the Bible, especially in Isaiah. So it's not just the power of all these miracles, but also the kind of all these miracles. So look at Isaiah 29, 18. I'll, I'll read several portions in Isaiah. First, 29, 18. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Notice of all those marks, those six things of healing and wonders, the last one is really not of the same category. It's preaching to the poor. And notice how all of these passages speak of the meek or the poor connected to the work of the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in a heart, as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Isaiah 42, 18. Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Isaiah 43 verse 8. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. And Isaiah 61, 1, which Jesus opened his ministry by reading from this passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. See, that was number one. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So Jesus proves his identity by saying, I am doing the things that the Bible proclaimed the Messiah would do. And and, and one of them that's very intriguing is this one, to the poor the gospel is preached. That, that was one of the signs of the Messiah, that he would not bypass the poor. He would minister to the poor. And, and, and this reality of poverty did two things. Um, it, it spoke of the humility of the Messiah, and it spoke also of the necessity of the people. Because in terms of poverty, it wasn't, at the end of the day, just people who were destitute of certain finances. And this is why it's very important that in this whole um, um, array of people that have been blessed by the Lord Jesus, one has been a very rich person who is called um, Levi. He, 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 he had a lot of money. He was not poor financially. But he also acknowledged that he was poor spiritually and needed to follow Jesus. And then there's another rich person in this array of narrative, and it's the centurion who had enough money to even 
give money to the Jews to build a synagogue, but he knows that Jesus is someone who's powerful to heal from a distance. And it is his faith that the Lord Jesus praises to the people of a rich man. But he was poor. He acknowledged his need. And it's the same analogy with health and sickness. Remember when they're complaining to Jesus that he is sitting and eating with sinners, he said the physician comes for the sick. And so what we understand then is every one of us in truth are poor and every one of us in truth are sick. Sin makes us poor. Sin makes us sick. You are not poor or sick by your awareness of it. We are poor and sick. We are bankrupt spiritually, and we are so sick that God's Word even says we're dead spiritually. That's how sick we are. There's no medicine that can be given to a dead person for him to live. We need life. The sad thing is that some live, lived in those days and live today who are not aware of their poverty. They're not aware of their sickness. You see, when Jesus was telling the Pharisees that implying that they are healthy, they don't need the doctor, they weren't truly healthy. It was an irony. They were very sick too. They just didn't know it. When you are sick and you don't know it, when you're poor and you don't know it, that means then that you're a hypocrite. Because you're not confessing the reality of your state. That's who the Pharisees were. They were sick and they were poor. And so when Jesus comes and preaches to the poor, it's the reality of, 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 of all of us having to hear the message of Jesus. And, and, and he doesn't go to the financially rich as if bypassing the poor because he just wants those that he can gain from. No, he, he goes to the lowly even financially because it was this connection, but it had this deeper meaning that everyone, even who is financially rich, should see himself a part of. So these are the two things with the thought of poverty. It is Jesus' compassion to go there, and it's also showing who we all are, that we should see ourselves as such. Um, that, is, that is the need of the hour. If, if you are financially rich, you should be like this centurion who acknowledges that he needs Christ even though he has money. And if we are financially poor, we can be encouraged. This, the reality of my finances mean nothing. I can be saved. I can go to heaven. I don't need a palace on earth. I, I, I need Christ. And then I will have a place in heaven. That is how we should see it. But the Lord Jesus, as he gives the answer, he says in verse 23, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And here starts the theme of those who receive Christ or don't. And he's telling these disciples, believe in me, I, I am the Messiah. Look at these signs and you'll be blessed if you're not offended in me. And, and the whole passage will end with this reality of, of when, you, when you are offended in Christ, when you don't receive him, what then? And, and right here we can say this, if you accept Christ, you are blessed. If you reject Christ, well then you receive the opposite of blessing and that is cursing. That is the implication. 
so an application. Um, we have seen in this first point the seriousness, the utter seriousness of lack of faith to the point where believers of old could not even think that it was John's lack of faith. So heinous is a sin of lack of faith. Let at least that be the lesson for us, that, that that's still a reality. If he was really doubting, that was in his infirmity, we cannot be comforted by that. We need to be careful because lack of sin is serious. Lack of faith, sorry, pardon, is very serious. But then also this, when you receive the Lord Jesus, which means you have faith, then you are blessed. You see here, you see the seriousness. If you don't receive the Lord Jesus because you don't have faith, you are not blessed. You are cursed. How can there be anything good in doubting? Anything good in lack of faith? But then this leads us to the second portion, the identity of John. As soon as they leave, in, in verse um, 24 says, And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. So these messengers came and talked about Jesus. Now they leave. Jesus will talk about John. Um, his identity was established. Now he wants to establish the identity of John. And, and the reason why that's important is because John's ministry was to point to Jesus. So it was important that people understood who John was and accepted his ministry. It didn't see it as something that, that was opposite of the Lord Jesus. And, and as we read, we'll see why people could think they were opposite. For one, they were completely different in the way that they ministered, but they had precisely the same message. But in, in defining the identity of Jesus, he, interestingly, the Lord Jesus, he doesn't, this is perhaps the most indirect way to say what he would say. He asks if they went to see a reed in the wilderness. And then secondly, he asked, did you go to see a man clothed in, in fine clothing, in soft raiment? And this is what I mean. This is the most indirect way because he's using opposites to say who John is. They all know they didn't go to see a reed. A reed is a very common thing. You don't go to the desert to see a weed, a reed. Um, everybody in Israel in the wilderness would know what a reed is. They wouldn't have to go to see it. And you wouldn't go to the wilderness to see a man in soft raiment. You would go to a palace and to the court to see that. But what was Jesus saying by using a reed and by using a man um, in soft clothing? Reeds are weak. They bend and they break and they shake with the wind and they bake under the sun. And the Lord, and not the Lord, but John the Baptist was completely opposite of that. He was a strong and determined and adamant man. He, he stood his ground before the religious leaders and even the king and queens of his day. Remember how he publicly exhorted Herod to repent of his sin. You see, John the Baptist was a bulwark. He was firm. He was settled. He was like a column of marble with truth 
and with righteousness. And see, this very reality that Jesus is, is really praising John is also one of the reasons that the Reformers would have and others who hold. It couldn't be that John is failing in his faith. This is a sturdy, strong man. I'm just saying this, these are the cumulative ways by which they would come with this, um, with this view. But then showing how, no matter how strong we are, we do need to be careful, if it is possible, that he did doubt. But this is who John was, not a reed. And then also comparing him to this man who would be in a, in a noble palace. No, that's not who John was. He wasn't someone polished as a nobleman. He wasn't someone who, who flattered his, and pampered his, his body. He was a man who lived a life of mortification. His self-control was exemplary. His life held to no attractions. Um, the wilderness was a home enough for him camel's clothing was clothing enough for him Um, honey and locusts was food enough for him and he could despise wine he it seems like he lived a life where it wasn't where he was forced to do all these things It, it was the way he wanted to live Matthew Henry says he was a man of unparalleled self-denial, a great example of mortification and contempt of the world. Instead of adorning and pampering the body, he brought it under and kept it in subjection. And that's what Jesus means when he says he wasn't a reed and he wasn't indeed a man in soft raiment. But then he says, and the third suggestion he gives is the right one, but even needing to be um, explained. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? And he says, yes, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. So John the Baptist is a prophet, and the Lord Jesus says, and even more than a prophet. And, and just these, these four things, why he says he was more than a prophet. Um, number one is because of his closeness to the Messiah. This always has to be understood about John the Baptist. The reason he had such a, a, a high praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, he even in, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, um, verse 28, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's the greatest praise the Lord Jesus has given to a human. Why? So number one, his closeness to the Lord Jesus. Every other prophet ministered from a distance, even hundreds of years, some thousands. But John the Baptist touched the Lord Jesus. He saw him. He baptized him. He was his cousin. And then also he's more than a prophet because of his ministry of mortification which is also unparalleled as, as we read. He, he was so given to self-control and a life of purity. God made him a Nazarite and he would be a Nazarite. He wouldn't touch wine. He, he wouldn't touch um, um, a relationship of family. He wouldn't have time for that even though it's, it's precious and God has a place for that. But certain men in the ministry, God singled them out to live in a way that, that his whole soul focus in life would be the ministry. And that was John the Baptist. A ministry of mortification. And then also his ministry of calling men to repentance. He, he was 
unwavering in doing this as we saw. He went to jail because he had the audacity of of exhorting even King Herod. He didn't shy away from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from the priests, from soldiers, from tax collectors. They were rich and some people are shy and timid to exhort people who are rich. No, he he exhorted everyone. Then fourthly, uh, a, a very simple and logical reason why he was more than a prophet is because he was also a priest. Um, he was literally more than a prophet in that sense, not just because of his greatness in all these ways, but just because he was also a priest. Remember, he's the son of Zechariah who was a priest. So John the Baptist is from the line of Aaron. And, and even the reality that by all we know, he never really officiated as a priest... Even that plays a part in the preciousness that he is a priest. Because yes, he never seems to have been one who held to sacrifices like lambs and and, and goats of other people in the morning and evening sacrifice. We never hear of any of that for John the Baptist. But we do hear that perhaps what would have been his most priestly work is when he gazed upon the Lord Jesus in the horizon and all the people that were coming to be baptized, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was then presenting to the world the sacrifice that God the Father gave to this world. And like every other priest would minister in the temple at the wash base, at the brass basin, washing their hands and parts of the offering, John the Baptist was at the Jordan River cleansing the people. And even their connection. Remember, with the, with when people had leprosy and they were cleansed, the sacrifice to be presented to the priest were two birds, one of which was to be killed and washed under running water, not still water, but running water. The whole idea of being leprosy is such an emblem of sin. Sin is so serious. You, you can't wash it in a basin. It, 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 it'll all stay there. You need running water. The idea of sin washing away profusely. And, and John the Baptist dealt with washing people very connected with the emblem of sins washing away. And so as a priest, he was washing all these people at the River Jordan. So he was more than a prophet because he was a priest. And the very fact he never dealt with lambs and goats is because he was dealing with the Lamb of God, presenting him to the world, and even cleansing visibly through the sacrament of baptism, Jesus himself. I say cleansing because that's what washing was of the water, but Jesus needed no cleansing for his own sins, only for ours that he would take. So he was more than a prophet. And and, and we need to understand this, beloved. This is an application for each of our hearts. We live in a world that to be more, to be plus, right? There's always that next best thing. It's always connected to power, and not weakness. It's always connected to wealth, but not poverty. It's always connected to pride. You're told to be proud in this world, not humility. It's connected to greatness and not smallness. It's connected, understandably, to health. You need to be healthy to achieve anything great and not sick. 
It's connected with worldly wisdom. You need to be smart. You need to be skillful. And not spiritual wisdom. Who, who here has been in applying for a job and they ask for your spiritual understanding of this world? I don't, I don't think they'd ever ask you unless you're applying to be a theologian in a seminary that's good or, or in a church, a pastor. This world is all about skill, not about humble submission. But this is who John the Baptist was. He had the appearance of weakness, of poverty. He was humble. He was small. Small in the sense of, of, of he wasn't in a palace. He was in the wilderness. But he had spiritual wisdom. And he had submission to the Lord. And, and one encouragement before we go to our third and last point. The Lord Jesus says, after he says, among those born of women, there is not a greater than John the Baptist. He says, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And, and reading some commentators, what, what they explain this little phrase is, is yes, in the old dispensation, John is the greatest. Because there can't be any more competition of those who went before but in the dispensation of the gospel, the Lord Jesus is literally saying that if anyone living today or these days past the Lord Jesus' ministry, the gospel dispensation with this heart of being least, then you're greater. This is what a Christian is called to live. Not a call for greatness, not a call for wealth, not a not a call for pride in this world, but a heart to serve, to make the Lord Jesus known through our lips and through our life. And Jesus is really getting, giving an encouragement as if any one of us living who would then want to proclaim the Lord Jesus and seek not a life of greatness, but leave all that to the Lord and live a life like John the Baptist, just mortifying and, and wanting to, to, to not live for the comforts of this world, but for the glory of God then you can be greater, even than John. So that about the identity of Jesus, the identity of John, and third and last, we'll just end with these two last verses. I, I won't get into the analogy Jesus uses, verses 31 through 35, but these two verses, 29 and 30, that show the result of all that was happening. Um, look what it says, And all the people that heard him, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. So it shows and he throws this glimpse that a lot of people, here we can understand perhaps most of them, maybe not every single one, but many who were now listening to Jesus and following him were people that beforehand had already followed John and been baptized by him. And they're now hearing Jesus, these publicans, and, and all people, and they follow him. In verse 30 it says, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. You see, the baptism of John that would have gone earlier years from now or, or months is now being called to see how it was a reality. There were some who saw that baptism and joined and said, yes, I need to be washed. I am repentant of my sins. And there were those who would say, no, I'm not getting in this water. I'm not letting this man touch me. I have no sins for which to repent. 
And so they were also not accepting Jesus. The, everything Jesus says following this shows that this is not just an assessment about John, it's also an assessment about Jesus. Because in verse 33 it says, For John the Baptist came, and then verse 34, The Son of Man is come. And see, both of them are being rejected by, by this group of the Pharisees and the lawyers. And, and I just want to, to end with this reality. What does it mean to justify God? And what does it means, mean to reject the counsel of God? You see in verse 29 and 30, those are the two phrases that go against each other. All the people that heard him and the publicans, that's an opposite people of the Pharisees and lawyers. What did the publicans and all the people do? They justified God being baptized. What did the Pharisees and lawyers do? They rejected the counsel of God not being baptized. So these are the two ways that people can live today. Either justifying God or rejecting the counsel of God. And, and, and just briefly, let's think of justifying God. To justify God means to believe that what comes from God is just and holy. It's not in any way that we declare something about God or do something to God. It's not something He depends on us, but it's simply us acknowledging if this came from God, it is right, it is good. John the Baptist came from God. I'll accept him. Jesus came from God. I'll receive him. I'll follow the admonition of John and follow Jesus. And when you do this, you are justifying God. It is, it is to not complain against him and his works. It is to agree that his word is true, that it is right, it is justified. So every believer, true believer, justifies God. If you're a believer today, you have agreed with God. You have acknowledged your need of a Savior. You, you have repented. You have rejoiced that there is this salvation in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have entered the waters of baptism joyfully. If you haven't been baptized as a little child and you believe in the Lord Jesus, you're ready to be baptized now as an adult. That's what justified God means. But what is the opposite? To not justify God, the opposite is to condemn God. That's how stark it is. You are not declaring God just, you're declaring Him unjust. You're, you're setting forth a declaration of condemnation against God. If this is your means of salvation, I will not receive Him. He's not sufficient for me. That's what it means to despise the counsels of God. Calvin says this about this. Since faith justifies God, it is impossible, on the other hand, but that unbelief must be blasphemy against Him and a disdainful withholding of that praise which is due to His name. You see here another example of how highly the Reformers held faith. Unbelief he called blasphemy against God. It is to despise God. That's why the Pharisees weren't baptized. They were not believing the message. They're not receiving Jesus. They're not believing the Lord Jesus. They are despising the counsel of God. 
Now, I just want to close with this reality. He says, against themselves. God's word says, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. If you are here under the preaching of the word and you have not come to the Lord Jesus by faith, you need to understand this reality. First, the greatness of the sin of lack of faith as we've been seeing. But then notice also that a lack of faith is a disfavor to yourself. By not believing, you are the one hurting yourself. See, they, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. It is not God who is hurt when you don't believe Him. It, it is not His heart that, that is offended in a sense where, where He's less in any way. Yes, He's grieved, but that doesn't mean that He's lacking. God never lacks. It is not my reception of God that, 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 in, that it makes God greater in any way. I'm the one that is am blessed when I receive Him. I'm the one who is cursed if I reject Him. That's what God's Word is saying. Those who reject God always do so to the detriment of themselves. To reject God is not a disfavor to God, but to yourself. Because God doesn't stand in need of our approbation of Him. He doesn't need people's faith or trust or honor. We do. We need to honor Him. We need that. We need the blessing that comes by trusting Him. We, we need to be the ones blessed by honoring Him. To dishonor Him is to dishonor yourself. To go against Him is to go against yourself. So you know what God's Word is doing? It's using here, even in essence, a self-interest. That it may be used in your heart to look outside of yourself. We, by nature, are self-centered. And God's word is even using your nature to say, well, then think of yourself. You are desiring your self-well-being. You would desire riches for yourself and life for yourself and good for yourself. Would you desire heaven for yourself and eternal good for yourself and eternal blessings for yourself? Well, then this is the venue. It is Christ embracing Him and His messenger John that led to Him and you will be the blessed one and not the one to be hurt. The Lord Jesus is literally using self to waken up self so that no longer you'll live for self, but you'll live for Him. Where you'll say, yes, Lord Jesus, Thou art the one I need. I've been hurting myself. In my, in my quest for self, I've been hurting myself. And isn't that the, 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 the connection of every sin? If you want a kind of pleasure that a drug would give you, you're, you're wanting to satisfy self. And while you're deep into that um, vice, you are killing yourself. And the Lord Jesus is saying that's what happens. God's word is saying if you reject the counsels of God, it is against yourself.
And Lord willing, we hope to look at the next few verses next time where he uses this comparison about who these people are who do not know what to choose, even when God uses so many means to lead us to himself. This is the Lord Jesus. May, may you and I, each of us, have our portion with him. That we would not be like these little children that do not know what to choose, but that you have chosen the best portion, who is Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we do thank thee, Lord, for thy word. We thank thee for these men who came from John. Lord, whether it be from a moment of weakness in John or the weakness he saw in his disciples, we, we confess, Lord, that we do not know. But we do see, Lord, that doubting about Jesus is serious. It is even deadly for those who remain in that doubt, who have unbelief. And we plead, Lord, with Thee that every single one within the hearing of Thy Word this morning would embrace the Lord Jesus as Savior and Messiah, acknowledging also their sins. As John the Baptist pointed, we're, we, we are not worthy to stand in Thy presence because of our sins. But Lord, we thank Thee that Christ is the very one who cleanses with, with a cleansing that is true and not just the emblem of the water, but pointing to the true of the blood. And so we pray, Lord, save souls among us today. And we plead all these things for Thine honor and glory. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.